0: pfk in los angeles this is living in the usa i'm john wiener talking about politics thinking about the left later in the show civil rights attorney carol sobel will talk about the lapd's dramatic increase in the use of dispersal orders in response to the protests of the last couple of years you know where they declare this is an unlawful assembly and you are ordered to disperse Carol represents Black Lives Matter Los Angeles in a lawsuit right now against the LAPD. Also, we're still thinking about Occupy Wall Street, which happened 10 years ago this month. Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce of the City University of New York have been studying and thinking about the achievements and limitations of the Occupy movement. We'll speak with them later in the hour. But first... Today's political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, for several weeks, you and I have worried about what the Democrats will do to cut their $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, as we call it, down to a size that is acceptable to those couple of problematic senators, and also there's a few members of Congress. You and I have worried that they will either cut some of everything, leaving a lot of things inadequately funded, or they will cut entire programs, which Americans desperately need. But you have come up with a solution. We do not face a Sophie's Choice after all.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, giving credit where credit is due. It was my uh, partner in crime at the American Prospect, David Dayan, who said this was a kind of Sophie's choice, and he was absolutely right. Uh, this, it really is a question of which child do you want to have killed? Uh, yeah. So I, I uh, giving new meaning to the phrase third way, I think I came up with uh, an alternative solution, which I don't, you know, may not fly, but might fly in part. And that is to say, The 3.5 trillion is when you take every program and figure its cost for the next decade. Well, there's a certain advantage uh, to funding everything, but not for the next decade. And I think a good cutoff point would be the year 2025. So instead of funding it for uh, 10 years or eight years, uh, you fund it for four years. Why four years? Well, of course, that brings down the dollar amount uh, to the kind of level that uh, the benighted moderates, so-called, in the Democratic Party uh, favor. But also it kind of frames the, then the 2024 and maybe even the 2022 election. If, if uh, people have a child tax credit and affordable childcare and paid sick leave and affordable community college and Medicare that covers dental and eyesight and hearing, uh, and uh, you go into the 2024 presidential and congressional election with the Democrats saying we will extend these programs and the Republicans saying we won't. I think it's advantage Democrats uh, now. Uh, I, so you know, I mean, I think that is my my third way. Now it's quite possible that the uh, Mansions and cinemas, and Gottheimer's, and Scott Peters, who is the one heretic from Southern California among the uh, Democratic uh, centrists, uh, you know, so, so say, well, no, nah, we're not really all that keen on that. But I mean, I think the more programs you can enact in that way uh, is still sufficient to really shape the terms of debate, the terms of discussion. Uh, the existential choice before the American people in 2024 and 2022, quite possibly. And so uh, yeah, I really think that's the way to go. There is a risk, yes, if the Republicans win, uh, you know, they, they may want to get rid of this stuff. But, you know, I would point out that every major social program that has taken effect somewhat provisionally, and most recently, the uh, Affordable Care Act has proven so popular that the Republicans, in the case of the uh, Affordable Care Act, after vowing to repeal it, uh, you know, incessantly vowing to repeal it, uh, when they actually had the power to do it, they couldn't bring themselves to do it. Uh, It was just, uh, I think, widely recognized as a somewhat suicidal move. So uh, I I think this is a roll roll of the dice worth taking, um, when you know, confronted with very the very imperfect options that the Democrats face, you know literally right now.
0: If you look at the news in the last couple of days, though, it's not about the 3.5 trillion. It's about whether the United States will soon be plunged into a recession and face financial calamity by defaulting on its loans for the first time ever. Uh, is this this, this standard Republican Republican game playing about the the debt limit? Uh, how, Republicans have played chicken over the debt limit before. How has that worked out for them?
1: Not too well. Um, uh, they've done they, they play chicken with this, with funding with government. Uh, shortly after Newt Gingrich uh, swept into power and the Republicans took the House, in the 1994 election for the first time in 40 years, they decided they'd shut down the government unless uh, the Democrats reduced Medicare and Medicaid spending. Um, so the government shut down. It was over the Christmas break, I think in 1995, 96. And uh, the public pressure got such that they uh, they caved. Uh, they, they said, okay, we'll fund the government. Uh, you know, similarly, uh, I mean, other other moments where they've said no, there was the uh, Obama stimulus package uh, and uh, actually the TARP, which was in the last months of George W. Bush's presidency, where they said no, and the market fell several thousand points immediately, and uh, they were spooked. So they uh, they came back and uh, and went for it. I, I think we could see a similar dynamic here, or the Democrats could simply uh, lump it into the reconciliation bill and pass it under that rule without any, uh, without any Republican support. I don't really think, uh, you know, the public is, is going to be upset by that, uh the republicans say oh but look how much the democrats are increasing the debt that really hasn't worked before particularly since the republicans repeatedly vote to increase the debt whenever a republican is in power most recently donald trump so you know um i mean they kind of give double standards a bad name
0: (laughs) well meanwhile back here in la karen bass uh has announced she is running for mayor One of our favorites, she's head of the Congressional Black Caucus. She started out as an organizer with Community Coalition in South L.A. Why would she leave a high-profile job in national politics to try to become mayor of L.A.?
1: Well, you have to assume that the people who are running for mayor of L.A. think that despite of all L.A.'s problems, it's a good job. Uh, Obviously, she, uh, she thinks that. And as well, she has a, you know, I think probably a higher public profile than anyone who has uh, suggested they want to run for mayor or, in fact, has already declared. So I I think another reason she's doing it is because she thinks there's a reasonable chance she could win. Also, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there are frustrations inherent in being a member of Congress uh, where, uh, where where if you want to get something done, uh, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. She was one of uh, the two uh, Democrats uh, who was negotiating with Republicans uh, for, I don't know, maybe almost a year on police reform and it it got nowhere. The Republicans finally uh, after almost a year of negotiation said, we don't want this. Uh, that can be frustrating. That can wear a person down. Uh, there are frustrations and things that wear you down if you're mayor, but that's not one of them. I mean, if you want something done and it can be done within the administration, uh, it gets done. Uh, and 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 so uh, you know, there's running room for for a progressive uh, who could uh, who could be the next mayor of L.A. Uh,
0: elsewhere in California, California elections require reapportionment because California will lose one congressional seat. We're told that this will probably be one held by an LA County Democrat. Why is that?
1: Well, uh, it's partly because, first of all, it's a nonpartisan commission. So presumably, it's going by numbers. And by numbers, LA didn't really grow uh, during the last decade. Uh, whereas the less populated parts of the state, which tend to be somewhat Republican, uh, the uh, San Joaquin Valley, uh, most notably, uh, and, and the Sierra Nevada, not that anyone in, lives there in, in, in any great strength, uh, they have grown. Uh, uh, you know, but I, I think we shouldn't get too hung up on what this means for uh, partisan representation in the California delegation. Uh, there is uh, the, the one seat in L.A. County, which flipped to Republican in 2018, uh, and I'm sorry, in 2020, was the North County Lancaster Palmdale seat, uh, which a Republican named Mike Garcia won, uh, and he has voted straight down the line with Trump, uh, which is not the politics of that district. So uh, I think he, he is extremely vulnerable. There are two Republicans who won seats in Orange County uh, in the 2020 election, who won them quite narrowly. And, you know, these things depend on turnout as well as line drawing. So I think there are still Democratic uh, possible advances, even if they do uh, lose uh, one of the, you know, almost uh, 20 uh, seats that are in and around LA. If the Democrats do lose one of those, I think they can still
0: pick up more and we're not going to find out, the candidates themselves, they're not going to find out the borders of their uh, new districts for months. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, that's partly because the, the Trump administration ran the census so slowly and poorly uh, that this is a problem across the nation, not just in California. Normally, uh, the state legislator, legislatures would have been handed the demographic, detailed demographic information, uh, some months ago, as it is, they've only had it now for a couple of weeks, uh, and so everyone is running behind here. This, this is a, a national problem, one of, one of many, and not near the top of the list that we can uh, uh, rightly blame on on the presidency of Donald Trump.
0: Well, elsewhere in the news, it turns out that Joe Biden really did win Arizona last year, and this is according to the Republican so-called audit. Will that now put at last, put to rest the argument that Trump actually won the election?
1: Only to people who have at least a faint degree of respect for uh, empirical reality. Uh, You know, Trump himself has contested this, even though this was, you know, so, semi ridiculous Republican effort uh, to uh, overturn something which had already been checked multiple times, uh, and you know, and and then the findings of this group kept being delayed because I think they had hoped to be able to show some plausible way in which Trump might have won Arizona, and the thing kept getting pushed back one month, two months, three months, four months, five months because they couldn't do it. And eventually they sort of gave up and said, well, okay, all right, we, we acknowledge Biden, Biden won Arizona. And not only did he win Arizona, but in Maricopa County, which is where we've really focused our, uh, our recount, which is the, the home of Phoenix, the largest city by far in Arizona, uh, not only uh, did Biden still win there, but he, they, their recount actually said, well, he actually came up with about 200 more votes than, uh, uh, than we thought he did, uh, than, you know, the official total. So uh, clearly this did not uh, go as uh, the uh, Republican nutcases in the state Senate who ordered this to happen uh, wished. Uh, and uh, some of them have said, okay, well, you know, I guess Biden won, but, you know, Donald Trump will never say that. And uh, therefore there are a lot of Republicans who will never say that.
0: Finally, we have to talk about politics and death. The New York Times reports that since the Delta variant of COVID began circulating widely in the United States, COVID has exacted a horrific death toll on red America. Uh, In counties where Donald Trump received at least 70% of the vote, the virus has killed about 47 out of every 100,000 people since the end of June. In counties where Trump has won less than 32% of the vote, the number of people killed by COVID is about 10 out of 100,000. So the the COVID death rate is almost five times higher in Republican counties. Uh, What exactly is the Republican political strategy at work here?
1: Uh, it is as uh, suicidal as it uh, as it sounds. Uh, I think, though, to compel the Republicans to change course, it would have to be many times more than five times. It would have to be five hundred times or five thousand times uh, before uh, governors like uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas would uh, agree that well, maybe mask mandates make some sense and maybe even an occasional vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. Uh, But until that happens, uh, you know, I mean, if you recall back to the debates over Obamacare, uh, Republicans said, well, it will give power to some death panels. Uh, No one, to my knowledge, has died of a death panel uh, under (laughs) Obamacare, but the Republican Party itself seems to be becoming one big death panel. Electorally, I don't think that's a great position uh, for them. It obviously, Uh, hurt Larry Elder in the California recall, and uh, uh, Mr. Youngkin, who is the Republican seeking the governorship of Virginia in a couple weeks, is clearly hurt by the fact that uh, he is not a mask or vaccine mandate guy, whereas the Democrat is.
0: Well, there's, of course, another way of looking at this. In an article this month for Breitbart, the right-wing website that was formerly run by Steve Bannon, one writer argued that this partisan gap in vaccination and death rates was part of a liberal plot. Liberals like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Anthony Fauci have tried so hard to persuade people to get vaccinated because they know that Republican voters will do exactly the opposite of whatever they say. What do you make of the argument that urging people to get vaccinated is a liberal plot to kill Republicans?
1: i would like to think that we're actually capable of being that diabolical uh i I don't but it's
0: perhaps something to aspire to harold myerson read him at prospect.org thank you harold this was great
1: john always great to be here
0: It's the same old story this is living in the usa and i'm john weiner talking about politics thinking about the left once again it's time to talk about the lapd many of our listeners have taken part in protests where they heard a police officer declare over a bullhorn this is an unlawful assembly you are ordered to disperse The LAPD has dramatically increased their use of dispersal orders over the last two years in the face of massive street protests over police violence and other issues. And thousands of people have been arrested for the crime of failure to disperse, including not only protesters but also journalists. Many of these arrests were later rejected by prosecutors and exposed the city and its taxpayers to a mountain of lawsuits, including many that are pending right now. But an investigation by the LA Times reported on Wednesday found that the LAPD has kept very few records of their dispersal orders. For comment, we turn to Carol Sobel. She's a civil rights lawyer and advocate who has sued the LAPD many times over police misconduct, including dispersal orders. She's one of the attorneys right now representing Black Lives Matter Los Angeles in a lawsuit about violent abuses of power by the LAPD. She's also sued the city of LA repeatedly for violating the rights of the homeless population. She spent 20 years working for the ACLU in LA. In 1997, she left the ACLU to start her own practice. She also serves on the board of directors of the National Police Accountability Project. Carol Sobel, welcome back.
2: Thank you. Glad to be back.
0: I think the constitution protects the rights of people to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Which amendment is that? That is the first amendment. And what are the rules about what happens if an assembly is not peaceful? How is peaceful defined these days?
2: Well, you know, California is pretty clear. It's got to be two people coming together, two or more people, coming together for an unlawful purpose. But the LAPD doesn't limit its, um, its declarations of unlawful assemblies uh, to that. Um, it just issues them whenever they want.
0: So the situation that comes to mind immediately is there's a thousand people marching down Wilshire Boulevard and one person throws from inside the crowd, throws a bottle at the police or breaks a store window. And we always wonder, is this person a provocateur whose job is okay. to give the police so, the rationale yeah. for ordering a protest yeah. to disperse? Your co- comment. So that
2: is actually that is actually not the rationale for ordering um, a protest, even though the LAPD tends to use that. Um, you have to find that the activity, the group is so infested with unlawful conduct, and that there is no way to remove or or go after the people who are engaged in the unlawful conduct. So if you've got one person uh, throwing a bottle, what you're supposed to be able, what you're supposed to do is rather than deny everyone else their First Amendment rights, you're supposed to arrest that person for doing that. The LAPD doesn't do that. What they have taken to doing recently, as we saw during the Floyd protests. Is if they think someone is throwing a bottle uh, or some other object at them, they uh, um, they first shoot them with a less lethal weapon, and nine times out of ten they miss and hit somebody who um, was not engaged in any unlawful activity. And then when people get really angry because they're being uh, shot at with weapons that can cause serious injury and um, are not supposed to be shot to the head or the upper body, but are repeatedly done by the LAPD that way, uh, then people get angry and then they uh, the LAPD uses that, exploits the, the, the anger at the LAPD's unlawful use of force to call an unlawful assembly.
0: The LA Times filed a public records request in April, asking the LAPD for a list of all dispersal orders issued since 2016, and for their documentation about the justification for those orders. The department finally has produced a list. It showed a total of two dispersal orders per year from 2016 through 2019, 17 dispersal orders in 2020, of course, the year of the Black Lives Matter protests, the largest protest in American history, and three dispersal orders in the first half of 2021. I wonder if you think that's it, 17 dispersal orders last year and two per year before that?
2: No, I think that that is, so So are a couple of different things. One is um, in the Black Lives Matter class action from the Floyd protest, the city has only been able to produce to us six videos of a dispersal order being given. Two were on May 30th at at Pan Pacific Park. And what the city counts as a dispersal order is an officer shouting uh, from 100 or 200 feet away, leave the area. That is not a dispersal order. Um, A dispersal order is set out by statute in California, essentially. And uh, there are elements that you have to meet. And we first, uh, the first time that we got Uh, an agreement, uh, a settlement with the city where dispersal orders were at issue was the um, 2000 Democratic National Convention. And uh, anybody who was there may remember that the city gave a dispersal order, gave people five minutes to leave the parking lot, and then as they were complying and leaving, shot them with rubber bullets.
0: I I believe you have some Um, personal experience here.
2: I do. <laughs> I was shot, but that's not where I was struck in the face, although there had been a dispersal order there. And I was 80 feet away from where the dispersal order was given when I was hit, and I was also, you know, on a, a public sidewalk observing. So, but, yes, so so they um, – and I actually had challenged the dispersal order that they gave at the DNC with the captain who was in charge – because what they did to give that dispersal order is they pulled the microphones for the rally. I believe uh, Reverend Lawson was speaking at the time, uh, who people know in Los Angeles. He's, he was uh, a, uh, um, a, uh, uh, an advisor to Martin Luther King. He's, his nonviolence is what he taught John Lewis and other people. Um, so Reverend Lawson was speaking. They pulled the microphones, and then they gave... A dispersal order. But as we all know, if you pull the electricity on the amplification (laughs) system, no one will hear you. So I had to ask them both to plug it back in (laughs) and, two, to give more than five minutes for about a 1,000 people to exit exit the uh, parking lot. And and if I could add one other thing. We had sued over the city's um, uh, permitting scheme. Uh, prior to the DNC taking place, and when we sued, one of the things that, because um, uh, we wanted to use that parking lot, and the city wanted us down the street near, uh, like a couple of blocks away, um, at uh, Georgia, which is where Loyola Law School is, and we said, well, how would we communicate our messages to the um, to the people who were there as delegates to the convention? And they said, we'll put up a jumbotron. To which we said that's not quite the same thing, and the federal judge agreed with us. So um, they gave this – but one of the things that that the federal judge ordered was that they not put in – the fire department wanted to take out the, the trees that were on the edge of the sidewalk because the fire department felt they would be an impediment to people getting out of the parking lot safely if there was an emergency, whether created by the LAPD or otherwise. The fire department took out the trees. The first night was fine. We come back the second day. The city had done, the police had done exactly what the court told them they could not do, which is put in K rails. Um, those concrete uh, bunker cut, you know, blockers put in alternating K rails so that when people, um, when the dispersal order was given and people started to leave and then the police started shooting at them, there was no safe way for people to get out.
0: Yeah. That was uh, that. So that was 2020, the Democratic National Convention, downtown Los Angeles. Of course, uh, this this has been going on for a long time. One of the most famous LAPD dispersal orders came. Many years before that, June 1967, at the Century City Anti-War March. uh, Mike Davis and I have a chapter about that one in our book on LA in the 60s. LBJ had come to LA to kick off his re-election campaign. Of course, eventually he decided not to run for re-election. But this was a gala fundraiser at the new Century Plaza Hotel. Uh, Ten or 15,000 people. Got a permit to march in protest against the war in Vietnam, and the march uh, uh, route was up Avenue of the Stars from Pico, past Overland, and past the hotel. Um, mm-hmm. About a dozen people sat down in front of the hotel, and at that point, the police uh, declared that the entire march of 15,000 people was an unlawful assembly. And ordered everyone to disperse. But of course, about fourteen thousand nine hundred of the people never heard this because they're stretched out way right. down uh, Avenue of the Stars. Um, fifth, but they waited. Police waited about fifteen minutes of silence, and then a thousand police attacked fifteen thousand marchers over many, many blocks and chased them around and beat them for, in some cases, for an hour. <laughs> Um, The ACLU wrote a big report uh, on that, and uh, LBJ eventually concluded he couldn't do public appearances anymore. In fact, he couldn't even run for president anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. My first LAPD dispersal order came on a very scary night. I had just gotten to L.A. December 1969, the Chicago police had just killed Fred Hampton, head of the Black Panthers in Chicago, in the middle of the night as he slept in his bed. And the Panthers in LA thought they would be next. And we got a call around 11 one night saying the Panthers thought the LAPD was about to attack their headquarters, which was at 41st and Central. Uh, and they wanted white supporters to come down and be a shield or maybe witness what whatever happened. So we jumped in our car, went down there. There was a few hundred people there. Uh, We didn't do anything. We just sort of milled around in front of the headquarters. Uh, There was no imminent threat of violence by anybody except maybe the police. But about midnight, the LAPD declared that we were an unlawful assembly and ordered us to disperse, which was obviously unfair and wrong. But we decided, well, if they arrest us, we won't be here to witness whatever happens. So we might as well go home. So, So we went home. And in fact, they didn't attack that night. They attacked at about two nights later, and not at midnight, but at dawn, it was the first use of a SWAT squad anywhere in the United States. But in the meantime, the Panthers had fortified their office because they knew what happened to Fred Hampton, held off the assault for several hours. And in the meantime, hundreds of people, and eventually live TV news showed up. Uh, Angela Davis was there. Uh, And so the Panthers were not killed uh, in their beds, in their headquarters, the police were forced to let them surrender peacefully. And none of them were killed that morning. That was December 8th, 1969. So this history of the police dealing with uh, crowds of protesters goes way back. Uh, you've been trying to get limits on what they have been doing for what, about 30, 20, 20 or 20 years or so. Uh, in the about next- to, big... About 30, it, it's almost exactly 30 years. Almost exactly. And I, I think I
2: mentioned, to, I, I mentioned to you earlier that I was um, uh, having a uh, meeting this weekend with Peter Mackler, who was a protester whose eye socket was fractured when the LAPD decided to um, declare an unlawful assembly. And this was actually really uh, interesting to me. This was, um, again, in front of the Century Plaza when pete wilson was there um for a fundraiser and pete wilson had just um vetoed ab 101 the omnibus gay rights bill and so this was a really calm protest you know at that point most of the activists were were white males gay white males in business clothes you know it was it was you know that's what they looked like they had negotiated being on the median so they could be relatively close, and they were peacefully demonstrating on the median when former Chief um, Vernon from the LAPD arrived. And as people may remember, Chief Vernon was uh, very religious. He actually sued the department, saying he was not selected as as uh, Daryl Gates' successor because of religious discrimination. But he was a member of Grace Community Church, the big church up in the valley, and. He um he at at one point when all this uh when the anti abortion uh blockades were going on at around the same time with Operation Rescue, um, he went to his church elders and asked them what should he do? Should he protect the rights of the uh the women going into the clinics? Or should he, you know, let Operation Rescue basically violate their constitutional rights Um, um, that's where he sought his direction not from the law but from his church Um, so so uh, Willie Pinnell was the uh, commander in charge and Robert Vernon arrives sort of midway through this demonstration and and this was a totally peaceful demonstration and Vernon directs Pinnell to shut the demonstration down to issue an order and Pinnell says But we told them they could be there, and they've done nothing wrong. And Vernon uh, just uh, demanded that Pennell issue an unlawful assembly order. He did, and then they brought in the horses, the officers on horseback, wielding batons. And that's how Peter Mackler's eye socket got broken. He was in the front, and he put up his hand to protect himself from the horse, and the officer hit him in the face, fracturing his eye socket because he said he had attacked the horse, which is a very common thing that happens. It's an assault on an LAPD officer, essentially, because the horse is, you know, like an unsworn member of the
0: department. <laughs> okay. um, so bring us up to date on the black lives matter, uh, litigation, that's going on right now, stemming from the protests in June of 2020.
2: So our position is there are, there were no, uh, adequate uh, dispersal orders that were heard by people. The irony of, of the Black Lives Matter case is that we just resolved, ended the litigation out of the Ferguson protests in 2014, the day before George Floyd was killed. Wow. Um, and, and, and that, you know, in, in that litigation, we challenged the LAPD's failure to adhere to two prior settlements, the DNC settlement which was then incorporated into the settlement from May Day 2007, where uh, an immigrant immigrant rights protest was broken up by the LAPD because, uh, you know, to use the example you used at the beginning, um, MacArthur Park, for listeners who don't know, is uh, next to Central Park, the largest in-city park uh, in an urban area. Um, It is divided by an eight-lane highway because um, Wilshire Boulevard is technically a highway. Um, so eight lanes divided in the middle. Um, so half of it's on the south side of Wilshire, half of it's on the north side of Wilshire. There were uh, the officers, there were a lot of problems with this demonstration to begin with. City didn't, police didn't want to give them a permit, wanted to force them to march downtown. Um, and I advised my clients to march to abreast on the public sidewalk because that was an order we just got from the Ninth Circuit that anybody could do that. Um, so, when, but when you have five thousand people, more than five thousand people marching on a sidewalk, um, it becomes difficult to control because they don't want to wait for all the the traffic lights. Um, so, under the agreement that we have with the city, they're supposed to facilitate these demonstrations, even if it means blocking traffic uh, for a while. Um, but they don't like don't like to do that. Um, but anyway, so the the demonstration occurred. In the southeast corner near Langer's Deli, there were a handful of people who threw objects at the officers who were lining um, the street there, Alvarado, Um, a handful. Uh, Rather than arrest those people at the southeast corner of MacArthur Park, the, the police declared the entire thing, an unlawful assembly, marched through all of MacArthur Park, and shot people and beat them with batons. And and there was no dispersal order given. The officers went on. It was a Metro Division, which had not been trained on the DNC settlement and dispersal orders required because Metro decided they didn't need any training from us. Uh, or We weren't going to do the training, but they didn't need to hear from me about what they knew what the law was. Um, so they go through. It's it, you know, MacArthur Park is a largely monolingual Spanish-speaking population. The officers were English-speaking, just yelling at people, move. They were striking people who were pushing their babies in strollers. It was really ugly, and they were shooting people with less lethal weapons, and people didn't know what was happening, because they weren't anywhere near these kids who had thrown things at them. Um, So that led to a, a really comprehensive settlement, particularly on dispersal orders. Ultimately, there was a dispersal order given from a helicopter, but that was Many minutes after they started beating people for not leaving and responding, Um, and um, and so we had this whole thing. The dispersal order is really clear. It's got to be given clearly. It's got to be audible. They should put somebody at the back to 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 who can attest that it's uh, been given. They should record it if possible. Um, And they never do. And and you have to get people tell them what the route is that they're supposed to leave and give them an adequate time to leave. They never do it. And the Chewer case that I talked about out of the Ferguson protest was exactly the same problem, where they they gave um, a dispersal order off of uh, a sound truck in downtown. It was mounted on a car. Um, It reverberated off the buildings. It was high traffic areas. No one heard it. Um, And they told people which way to go, and then somebody else, another officer, told them to go a different way. (laughs) And it was like a comedy. But the bottom line was that people got arrested um, for failure to disperse when there was no audible order. So they had given us a total, just a total of six recorded dispersal orders from a full week of demonstration that resulted in more than 4,000 people being arrested.
0: Carol Sobel, she's been fighting LAPD abuse of power for three decades. Right now, she's representing Black Lives Matter Los Angeles in a lawsuit over last year's protests. Carol, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Ten years ago this month, a small group of young radicals declared, we are the 99% and set up camp in Zuccotti Park in Manhattan's financial district. They called themselves Occupy Wall Street. They focused on challenging skyrocketing inequality and entrenched corporate power But instead of a few people protesting for a few days, the movement exploded into thousands of encampments outside city halls and in city centers across America and around the world, lasting in some cases for months, transforming the left in America and giving rise to a new generation of political activists. Then they were shut down and Occupy was over. The nation is publishing a special issue assessing the legacy and lessons of the Occupy movement, perhaps the most unexpected success of the left in living memory, but also one with some significant flaws and weaknesses. For comment, we turn to two people who teach labor and urban studies at the City University of New York who've been studying Occupy, Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce. Along with Penny Lewis, they've written the lead piece in the nation's special issue, Ruth Milkman is the author, most recently, of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Hi, Ruth. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And Stephanie Luce's books include Labor Movements: Global Perspectives, and Fighting for a Living Wage. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. You guys have been studying the Occupy movement for a long time. What was your method? what What have you been looking for? Stephanie? So we
3: initially did a study uh, right when Occupy started. Uh, We began to look at what was going on in the park, and we launched a survey of people at the May Day 2012 march associated with Occupy Wall Street. And by that time, actually, people had already been kicked out of Zuccotti Park, but they were still actively engaged in Occupy Wall Street um, working groups. So we did the survey um, talking to hundreds of people there at the the march. And then we also did in-depth interviews with key leaders in the Occupy movement. And we selected people based on uh, who was involved in different kinds of working groups within the park, within the Occupy movement, Uh, the labor working group, the media, the tech teams and so forth. So um, we talked to 25 people at that time. And then we've gone back 10 years later uh, on this anniversary to talk to people in this past year about what have they been up to in these past 10 years, what are the lessons they've learned, uh, what do they take from the Occupy experience
0: lots of people have lots of ideas about what occupy did wrong but let's start with what they did right what they accomplished what we can learn from their success maybe we should start with the tactic of occupying public space in urban centers and staying staying for a long time this wasn't a demonstration or a protest march or a teach-in or a political campaign of course there have been lots of other kinds of occupations student radicals occupying the school president's office protesters occupying congressional offices and of course the grandfather of all occupations in america the auto workers occupation of the gm plant in flint for 44 days in 1936 and 1937 and lots of other countries where workers have occupied factories for a long time but but this was different uh, let's talk about the significance of occupying public space. Ruth.
4: Well, this came in the aftermath of some similar occupations around the world. Tahrir Square in Cairo, the Indignados occupations in Madrid and Barcelona. And and the, occupation, um, sorry, the Occupy Wall Street crowd were very aware of that global chain of events. And in fact, the um, form that the occupation took replicated. I think that it was occupy Wall Street three years after the meltdown of the financial system in 2008 and the anger that the population as a whole and progressives in particular had toward Wall Street at that time. And um, Wall Street was didn't really pay the price of the meltdown that it created. And the, many people in the broader population did pay that price. So it really struck a chord with the wider public. And so that was really important. And the tactic of physically occupying a space also was, as you said, not unique, but very powerful in that anyone could come and check out what was happening at Zuccotti Park. Um, the people who stayed there for long periods of time built very strong relationships with one another, created a whole mini society in the park. They offered education, health care, food. Um, sleeping, obviously. So it, it really was a kind of prefigurative moment, too, of trying to build, you know, on a small scale, the kind of society people hoped might exist in the future.
0: And the other big thing was uh, we are the 99 percent, a very simple claim and a, turns out one that had tremendous resonance. Stephanie, let's talk about that.
3: Yeah, a number of uh, the people we've interviewed said that that in part was part of the appeal that they felt like it kind of spoke to everyone. It spoke to the issues they were concerned about. The people came from different areas of work or different interests, environmentalists, labor. Um, feminist movements, anti-racist movements, but the framing of "We Are the Ninety-Nine Percent" left it open for everyone to to feel it was their movement. That included some on the right as well. In the early days, there were you know libertarian voices out there, and there were you know voices from across the spectrum. So that was an issue to work through, but it created a sense that. Um, of naming the enemy that hadn't happened since the 2008 crash. You know, the the right wing came out after the 2008 crash, naming the enemy as, you know, people that work for the public sector, people that were drawing a pension, people that were poor and bought a house. So this was flipping that narrative and saying, no, the enemy is actually the 1%.
0: And Occupy was remarkable also for its internal rules. It was a leaderless movement with what they called a horizontal structure that was quite an achievement, Ruth.
4: Well, yes, and that replicated, again, what had gone on elsewhere, like the indignados in Spain, for example, had the same aspiration of a horizontalist movement with no hierarchy. They they called it leaderful, not leaderless, but the fact that they refused to identify individuals who might be sort of peeled off and turned into spokespeople or something like that for the media was very important because it made it impossible to focus on the foibles of some individual or individuals. And instead, the public and the media had to confront the reality that there were lots and lots of people doing this. The horizontalism was really important because it, it reflected a kind of disillusion with conventional forms of politics and the idea that bureaucracy was something really dangerous and to be spurned and that You know, individuals who had too much power in a movement were problematic and so on. Although, in the end, as it exploded into a much larger occupation than anyone expected, the horizontal structure also had some problematic aspects in that it was really hard to run a meeting with thousands of people
0: at once. We'll get to that in a minute. It exploded, and that was another one of the remarkable, and as you say, completely unexpected things about it. You know, it's one thing to have big Occupy camps in Los Angeles or San Francisco where there's hundreds of activists or full-time organizers. But Occupy was all over the place in the United States and all over the world. My favorite report in The Nation at the time was written by Mike Davis, who traveled to small towns in the Imperial Valley uh, east of San Diego. He wrote about Occupy El Centro. This is a town no one's ever been to, you know, there were 40 or 50 people in the Occupy camp there. Mike wrote, quote, I went to El Centro thinking that I might find a simple copy of the Wall Street protest, a copycat action unlikely to grow in the hostile climate of Imperial County. What I discovered, in fact, was a desert flower brought to blossom by a combination of Long cultivation, drawing on a long activist tradition, a lot of sunlight, he says, dialogue via social media, and equally important, the existence of a local greenhouse that is a physical space for meeting and interaction. How do you understand the tremendous explosion of Occupy into all of these smaller, unexpected places across America?
3: Yeah, I I think it's extraordinary. What we know from social movements is that a lot of times people try things and they fail and it's mostly failure. Um, And in fact, in New York City, just a few months before, people had occupied another section of Wall Street in something called Bloombergville. And that only lasted a week or so and then was kind of dispersed. So why did this particular one take off so much in New York and then spread around the country? Uh, I think we'll never really know that. But I think some of the factors um, that we've named, which is that it was open to the 99 it de- did speak to the pent-up anger that people had had since the 2008 crisis it was tapping into the energies of young people that had kind of come of age in that crisis had been thinking they had been doing everything right and you know were inheriting this world of you know chaos and and economic hardship whether they themselves were experiencing it or their parents right what you just read from mike davis actually you know, made me think also even of last summer and we saw the same thing happen with Black Lives Matters protests yes. all over the country um, in the same kind of unexpected ways. And so I think, you know, it's hard to predict which are the ones that are going to succeed and which ones won't. But there were certainly a lot of factors that came together at the right time.
0: Ruth, do you want to add?
4: Yeah. Well, in the quote from Mike Davis, you mentioned and he mentioned um, social media. And I think that was a key ingredient. It, there was also conventional media. that that amplified the Zuccotti Park occupation and made people all over the country, all over the world aware of it. And some of them chose to start their own occupations. But social media, this was one of the first major movements in which um, the activists themselves communicated over social media, the first in the United States. The same thing happened in Egypt in the Arab Spring. Today, 10 years later, the police and other state agents are very adept at social media themselves, but that was not the case in September 2011. And so this was a huge resource and an advantage that the occupiers had and that they exploited very you know, imaginatively and successfully. And that, of course, also helped spread the word around the country and the world.
0: Of course, lots of people have been thinking ever since Occupy shut down about the limitations, the problems, the weaknesses, the failures. What do you consider the most significant, Ruth?
4: Well, I'm not sure it's a failure exactly, but in terms of a limitation, Um, The strength of Occupy was also its biggest weakness, which was its focus, its unrelenting focus on class inequality. We are the 99% and relative lack of attention to racial oppression, gender oppression, the oppression of sexual minorities. There were people involved in Occupy who pointed that out while it was underway and tried to address that problem. But in general, that didn't really um, ever succeed in, in any big way. And so- You know, that was one of the big limitations. I do think that since then, many of the activists involved continued to be involved in other movements, including things like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and so on. So they've kind of made up for it since, but that was a limitation at the time.
0: And Stephanie, what's at the top of your list? You know, one of
3: our interviewees, Reverend Mike Alex said that it was a way for powerless people to gain power quickly. And I think it, it that's what direct action does. That kind of action will get attention and will uh, create an upsurge. But it is not sustainable. And people could not sustain life in the park b- between the police presence, um, under undercover disruptions, um, and just trying to sustain daily life, and also trying to service the people that came into the park and feed people and, and uh, house them and provide services just was not sustainable. So I think, you know, for most people, they saw that it needed to transition into other forms, taking uh, building power, whether it was through electoral power or through unions or through other kinds of um, momentum building, but it couldn't, it had to transition into another form.
0: And Occupy was also criticized for having a lack of concrete demands. Now, Occupy itself proclaimed that was one of their great achievements. They did not have a legislative agenda. They were not supporting particular candidates. What do you think of the criticism that they lacked concrete demands and that that was a a serious flaw?
4: I mean, at the time it meant that anybody could bring their own grievances into the movement, regardless of what those were. So it became a kind of multiplier of uh, activism and energy. They were also extremely disdainful of electoral activity, partly because this was a generation that the most of the occupiers were relatively young, and they were the same generation that had enthusiastically supported Obama in 2008 and were extremely disappointed in the results. He didn't really deliver on the promises of hope and change that many of them had been attracted to. And so that made people, you know, quite suspicious of an electoral agenda. Of course, the very success of Occupy changed that later, and many of the occupiers went on to be big supporters of Bernie Sanders, for example, as well as some of them candidates themselves for local and state office. So things have evolved in the last 10 years, but at the time, that was a very uh, central plank of
0: of the movement. And Stephanie, we've also heard a lot of criticism of what some people call the tyranny of structurelessness. Let's talk about that.
3: So I think that that also has a double-edged sword because I'm um, going back to the early idea of the horizontalism. It was a way for people to come in and, and engage and feel like they were part of it. Um, but that kind of work takes a lot of training. It's, it's a skill that has to be developed and it has to be adjusted to the size of the group. So When something like that happens, there are leaders because there are people that come in with political sophistication, with political tools. They know how to work the system or disruptors have a lot of power in that kind of system as well. And so I think people have learned, you know, a number of the activists that we talk to that still feel fairly committed to horizontalism say that they they might do some things differently, still keep it as participatory and mostly horizontalist, but structure it so that it was based on inclusion instead of trying to exclude negative voices.
0: And finally, we need to talk about the legacy of the Occupy movement for us today. Ruth, you mentioned briefly that the Bernie Sanders campaign is very much a kind of a response to the Occupy movement.
4: Bernie Sanders, of course, has been around for a long time, much before twenty eleven. But I don't think he would have vaulted into the you know a major presidential candidacy the way he has um, since then had, if it were not for Occupy and the kind of ideas that it validated. So, you know, there, there were many people around who had critiques of capitalism and awareness of skyrocketing inequality and all the rest. But what Occupy did was make those things mainstream and give them traction with the everybody who participates in the political conversation. And that really was something unprecedented in our lifetimes, I think.
0: And Stephanie, what do you see as the most significant parts of the legacy of the Occupy movement?
3: I think what happened was there was a shift in consciousness amongst the left at the time. You know, some, lots of people were new to politics through Occupy, but many were seasoned or had been around even for, you know, a while and been really kind of demoralized by the anti war movement in the early 2000s. And I think what this did was to shift their confidence to say, like, we actually can build power, we can get the world's attention. Um, we should take ourselves more seriously and dig in and, and take this on full time. And I think it laid the foundation for that confidence going in all of these different directions, whether it was Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, Bernie Sanders, DSA, like saying we're gonna, we're gonna go in our areas of work and we're gonna, we're gonna really contest for power in a real way.
0: The nation's special issue on the tenth anniversary of the Occupy movement is out this week. It includes a piece, The Transformation of Protest, written by Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce, along with Penny Lewis, who wasn't able to join us today. You can read it online now at thenation.com. Ruth and Stephanie, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for talking with us today.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.